This edition of the Bio Report is brought to you by the California Technology Council, providing discounts on products and services essential to every startup. For more information, visit californiatechnology.org forward slash member benefits. I'm Daniel Levine, and this is the Bio Report. Incubators and accelerators have been proliferating in California, but little has been done to track their activities and analyze their performance. The California Business Incubation Alliance recently released a study of the performance of incubators and accelerators in California, the contribution they make to the state's economy, and whether they deliver value to the entrepreneurs that use them. We spoke to Matt Gardner, CEO of the California Technology Council and lead author of the report, about its findings, why gathering data about incubators and accelerators is so challenging, and why the findings include a word of caution to entrepreneurs. As a matter of full disclosure, Matt is a friend, client, and partner, and I served as an editor on this report. Matt, thanks for joining us. Danny, it's always a pleasure. We're going to Talk about the California Business Incubation Alliance's recently released report, California Toolworks, Incubation and Acceleration in the Cauldron of Innovation, and a follow-up paper on the life sciences specifically. Let's begin with the idea of incubators versus accelerators. As your report notes, there is an agreement as to what these terms mean, even by the people in the businesses of running incubators and accelerators. How do you distinguish between what an incubator is and what an accelerator is? Well, you know, deeply steeped in the industry itself, still struggle with this question. But there are some hallmarks. And so I think what we identified as the most common hallmarks of an incubator are, uh, you know, physical space, shared equipment, uh, common core services, and uh, no fixed term and, and usually no necessary curriculum to uh, the kind of client that's typically at early stage and developing a prototype. Accelerators are more often, uh, although many still can be tied to physical space, are more often tied to a, a fixed-term curriculum, usually about a semester in length, so 10 to 14 weeks, and driven by a network of mentors, and oftentimes including uh Something that looks like an angel investment. So, in, in many ways, accelerators have uh, taken some part of the place of uh, the highest risk kind of seed capital that uh, has uh, shrunk as a part of the kind of risk equity equation over the last decade. Among these entities, there's a, a wide range in focus, structure, cost, and, and whether or not they even make investments. How do you define this universe, and what's the range of things they they do? Yeah, there are, are three or four of the kind of more common types of these programs, and and so first, let me just say I'm I'm going to lump together incubators and accelerators as I describe these as programs, uh, but but what the most common types are that we can see are 
those that are academically affiliated, uh, those that might be publicly financed by a government, usually at the municipal or, or state level, uh, then there are a great number of those that are tied to a corporate structure and sometimes more than one corporate partner. And then there are plenty that are independent and freestanding. And some of those that are independent are kind of like the workshops that are tied to a specific venture fund or sometimes two or three venture partners. And so there are really interesting varieties in in those categories. And no two are alike, but um, in some ways you could look at the venture and corporate structures as a version of a scouting for the next big idea, whereas those that are sometimes academic and and um, and publicly financed might be playing more of a of a service role to commercialize ideas out of uh, local labs and universities, and um, and and so have a different disposition toward. Uh, the kinds of entrepreneurs that they're uh, they're trying to serve. It, really, at the end of the day, they're all trying to do the same thing in terms of building the next great startup. Uh, but the ways that they do that and the, the kinds of services they deliver can be very different. The report is interesting on a number of counts. One of the things you're trying to do here is quantify this universe in California, capture its variations, and provide some standardized metrics for evaluating performance. What did you find when you set out to do this? We, we found it very difficult to do so, Danny, and I, I think you know, among the many reasons why, uh, there's been a significant jump in the absolute number of these programs and a, uh, a, a completely new spread across many, many industries in these programs since about 2010, 2011. And so during the kind of global financial crisis, capital of all kinds shrunk. And uh, certainly risk capital did, the kind of earliest stage, uh, you know, seed to series A cash uh, for uh, the kind of venture ecosystem uh, dried up quite a bit. And so among the many things that happened to kind of backfill for that, a lot of accelerators grew in their place. Uh, also, angel groups became much more organized and, and more sophisticated. So there are a number of things happening during that time that led to an increase in the, uh, the absolute number of startups. Uh, you know, quick exits and, and high valuations meant that a lot of capital moved to to uh, software industries, lighter industries. And so after that, um, uh, that kind of trend took hold for a few years, then a little while later, we see a little bit of a diversification strategy in where the capital is going. So, uh, you know, by 2012, 2013, you started to see a rush of uh, a new generation of uh, life science, health-related programs and other kinds of hardware and electronics-based programs as well. So uh, certainly capital is looking for diversity. It's looking to spread its bets. Uh, but because of that recency, measurement proved very difficult. There, there were so many programs that just didn't have the kind of longitudinal data uh, for outcomes of their clients that could tell us much about how those entrepreneurs were doing. Uh, most programs are tracking the kind of capital-raising success of their portfolios. But very few could actually tell us how those companies had grown, uh, what kind of jobs they'd, you know, added to their, uh, to their headcounts, their full-time equivalents. And, um, and there was very little information available about the sort of investing they were doing in their communities. And so the, I think the worst part that we found about confining the definitions that we were uh, trying to create is that we even found that many of the programs that we 
uh, surveyed in California had clients coming from all over the world. So we couldn't even tell for certain that the capital that was raised was spent either in California or the United States because some of those clients would have come back home or gone back home to wherever they'd come from or had expanded globally uh, from graduating from these programs. And so uh, it, it proved very difficult to assess uh, what success ought to look like, uh, you know, how to align those objectives between entrepreneur and, you know, accelerator programs and investors. And, and so I think it's, it may be some years more before uh, the picture gets more consistent. One of the reasons the task was so complicated is the fact that incubators and accelerators generally don't track the type of metrics that would make a case for whether or not they're successful and the value they provide to their client companies and, and to the larger economy. Why don't they generally track this data? A big part of the reason is that many of these programs are uh, really just working on building companies and products from private investment. And so they're not necessarily interested in the same measurement that you know economic development and government and tax authorities might be. They're really just trying to get companies to success. So we did more than 100 interviews of these programs themselves and their managers. And most people are operating in these environments where they're just so busy with their heads down working on supporting and building these companies that they're not uh, spending a lot of time looking back at a company that graduated three years or five years prior to see how it's doing and asking a lot of questions. Now, on the other hand, we did have uh, programs in that category that I would say were private investors who said that they stay with their companies until they're profitable. And so graduation uh, to, to programs that answered in a, in a sense like that uh, really is a meaningless term. Com they, they stay with their companies. They continue to support their entrepreneurs uh, you know, well beyond their graduation from a fixed cohort, if you will. And so um, you know, we certainly saw all kinds of levels of support for folks that were both real and virtual and uh, short-term and long-term. On the other hand, that the kind of academic and publicly financed programs, uh, you know, have a tendency to measure for things like, you know, employment outcomes and, and the community investing that's resulting from a company's success. And so it, it, in the, you know, in the academic environment where you, you might be in a land grant university and have a publicly uh, financed incubation program, uh, those companies are much more likely to be obligated to provide some of those measures. It just makes uh, the measurement of, of those economic outcomes easier to identify. What's the consequence of not having metrics of success, particularly for the potential users of these incubators and accelerators? Well, that's the biggest implication, Danny. You've hit on it. Uh, the, the greatest challenge that we saw is really from the perspective of entrepreneurs, which is that if you were an entrepreneur considering a program for next year, it would be very difficult to assess uh, which program might be best for you. There, uh, there are a number of factors here, including the proliferation of these programs, meaning that, as you've seen from the study, we can see, you know, 98 programs in the United States in healthcare. But looking beyond California and looking across the country, there are options for entrepreneurs. That by itself is good. But because of the uh, sort of inconsistent or lack of long-term measurements, it, it would be very difficult for an entrepreneur to say, I know exactly what I'll get from that program. Here are a hundred other entrepreneurs I can see or hear from uh, who've been through them, and here are their results. Uh, although, in you know a strictly uh, financial sense, uh, those programs that have been around longer, a decade or more, uh, entrepreneurs would certainly be able to see the fundraising track record of graduated companies in most of those cases. But uh, you know, it's a, it puts an entrepreneur in a difficult spot when they're considering 
what they want to, hope to, and, and need to get out of going into an accelerator. Well, there's no licensing for an incubator or accelerator. Anyone, in essence, can hang a shingle and declare themselves to be one of these. There's a bit of a warning to entrepreneurs in here about doing their homework before giving up equity in exchange for going through one of these programs. What should they do when shopping around or considering whether or not to become part of a, an incubator or an accelerator? Yeah, that's uh, that's the million-dollar question, and I mean that literally. We we spoke to uh, about 50 entrepreneurs who had graduated from these programs and, and got some, um, I think, pretty stunning, but, but also very honest and, and frank uh, responses. And uh, among those responses, we heard from entrepreneurs who said things like they were concerned about the amount of kind of superfluous programming uh, that was in the calendar of the program they went into. And, and so there are times when, you know, you might be in an accelerator program where there's a lot of classroom instruction that has really nothing to do with you developing your company. And so it's busy nests, but not necessarily uh, appropriate time for you to, to get things injected into your company or get experts with eyeballs on your company. And, and so that could be very hard to tell before you go in. Uh, just about everybody from an entrepreneurial perspective who, who we interviewed, even when they said they had, you know, some uh, skepticism about what they saw in the programs they participated in, even in those instances where there was a skeptic, almost always uh, they responded with a positive note about things that they got out of their program that they didn't expect. And usually that was something with regard to a mentor uh, or a complete mentor network uh, and, you know, support for a change in the business where they came in with an idea that they thought was right and turned out to be completely wrong and, and had to pivot and, and reposition. So um, we still got overwhelmingly positive feedback about going through it. It's, it's like getting an MBA in, in 12 weeks. And so, uh, you know, in, in almost every case, we had positive feedback about the changes that the, the programs prompted. Uh, but, you know, most entrepreneurs told us you have to be able to identify the track record of the individuals involved in leading the instruction. So it isn't just about what did the accelerator do, because the principles may come and go. It's really about making sure you've looked closely at the track record of the individuals involved. Well, is there any pattern you've seen that would give a company a better chance of success when selecting an incubator or accelerator? There, there is a, uh, a study that's released every year at South by Southwest called the Seed Accelerators Rankings Project. Uh, Seed Accelerator Rankings Project. and and among the things that they do every year is, is kind of rate the top 10 programs in the U.S. That's normal for them to try and, and do. What they did this year was interesting. In addition to ratings, they published some averages about uh, what the average accelerator program is seeking from entrepreneurs entering. And among those averages, they found that accelerators were asking for 6% equity with something they, quote, accept. Now, if you're the entrepreneur and you're thinking about 6% equity, you've really got to think about how the cost of that capital. And so the trend that I think that, that we picked up from those 50 or so interviews that we did uh, was that the discerning entrepreneur who just spends a little extra time, uh, you know, asking a few questions about what they're thinking about, still universally told us that they got positive things out of the programs they participated in. But, it, you know, there, there is a healthy skepticism that would benefit those from thinking about what the cost of that capital is, making sure you're going to get something from it, and asking some hard questions before you go. Life sciences is different than most other industries that go through incubators and accelerators because they often require access to wet labs and expensive equipment. How do these incubators and accelerators differ from the others? Uh, we think that both the t 
top line of the the main study and then this this follow-on white paper about the life sciences uh, kind of breakout, both come back to the main difference in the two findings of the category on the whole and the life sciences sub uh, group within. And and so the top line of the category on the whole is the average accelerator uh, is pretty light and fast to set up. It, it may cost on average about three people and about $400,000 to set one up. And that, that's, uh, you know, that's a pretty broadly spread average. What that tells you is, Generally speaking, in, in industries like software and e-commerce, you could pop up an accelerator pretty quickly and, and for very little cost. Uh, the difference in the life sciences and in hardware and, and real industries like that is the, uh, the cost for shared equipment and, uh, and the hardware and the, and the wet labs and the improvement uh, is in the millions of dollars. So there's no easy way to set up a life sciences incubator uh, and I think the upside of that for communities thinking about support for these things is that they're certainly going to get a lasting investment out of those kinds of programs. Uh, for the entrepreneur, uh, typically, one of the reasons these programs grew up over the last 40 years is that the entrepreneur couldn't afford to find real estate like this anyway. And so this was a gap in the market that occurred that, that caused lots of universities all over the country to, to build incubators and, and lots of public sector agencies to build incubators. And so, um, Really, generally speaking, an entrepreneur could not convince a landlord to build a 500 square foot wet lab facility for them to experiment on a prototype. And so, uh, I think what we found is is very consistent here that uh, that the cost of setting up these programs is millions of dollars compared to that average of four hundred thousand dollars for the the typical program uh, across California in any any industry. And um, and so there's a you know a 10x plus uh, difference there. On top of that, I think the other thing that we found that, that surprised us is the lag time. So if you look at the surge in accelerators uh, in the in the kind of the larger study, the overall study, uh, it occurred, I, I think, about two, three years before the surge in life science and hardware programs. And so uh, if, you, if you take the life sciences breakout and you see the number of programs started in 2012, 2013, even those that are recognized nationally and globally as industry leading, J-Labs and and Bayer and Illumina are in the last couple of years. And so it, it is fascinating to see that, uh, that these programs that are relatively new lagged really behind uh, the kind of general accelerator movement by, by a few years. Well, has that higher barrier to entry increased the quality of the choices entrepreneurs face in the life sciences? You know, I think that's too soon to tell, uh, for, at least from our data. But I would say that that, that it would be Virtually impossible to be a fly-by-night in this industry just because of the the kind of investment that you have to lay down in order to participate. So I, I think we we certainly see a, a number of uh, life sciences programs that have been around for decades, and and you can see examples of that in, in the white paper for this, uh, such as the Molecular Medicine Research Institute in Sunnyvale and the Foundry in Menlo Park. Uh, long, long track record of demonstrated companies graduating. Uh, and having exits. And so um, it would be very difficult, I think, to to prop something up that would be light. And uh, and, uh, and so I think the entrepreneur is in relatively safer territory here where there's an established program uh, or a, a program backed by a, you know, a corporate multinational because they're not going to disappear the next day. One of the things you suggested that these accelerators have helped bridge the valley of death in terms of both 
capital and product development for life sciences entrepreneurs. What kind of investments are you seeing? And to what extent does this process carry these startups to a point where they can attract their first venture funding? I think, again, we have seen this category, accelerators on the whole, kind of take the place of, of you know, some part of what might have been seed capital 10 years ago. Uh, we, we do tend to see lots of programs, especially those that are tied to corporates or uh, to a venture partner or more than one, uh, providing some injection of capital. And so, uh, you know, ranging from the, the Citrix accelerator, which uh, used to provide about $200,000 per company, uh, to, uh, to, for example, what I think uh, IndieBio is doing, which is a relatively new wet lab incubator in, in San Francisco, providing somewhere around $300,000 or $350,000. Uh, you know, that's a real injection of capital to help an entrepreneur get along the way. However, as you know, Danny, perfectly well, life sciences is an expensive industry. That may not get you very far. So, you know, if you're uh, if you're an organization like Breakout Labs, which is part of the Teal Foundation, you know, they've looked at that kind of $200,000 injection of, of early capital. And and it's, uh, it's extremely helpful to an entrepreneur to have that kind of uh, participation uh, in a program that you might participate in. Uh, but in the life sciences, because you might have an, a 15-year product development runway, there's still a hard question there about uh, the valley of death that, that occurs uh, for that early stage funding. And that hasn't really been answered yet. So I think groups like Illumina that have built an accelerator in, in Mission Bay in the San Francisco Bay Area uh, have established a partnership that, that created a $50 million sidecar fund with their program. And so we've seen a few programs like that pop up where they have a sidecar fund, which may or may not invest in the companies that come into their uh, accelerator platform, and, and that's certainly going to help. And, and in the life sciences, it's going to become a necessary uh, part of the equation for companies who need the runway. Matt Gardner, CEO of the California Technology Council. Matt, thanks as always. Danny, it's always a pleasure. Thanks for listening. The Bio Report is a production of the Levine Media Group. To automatically download this podcast each week, subscribe to our RSS feed or through iTunes or other podcast manager. To join our mailing list, go to levinemediagroup.com. We'd love to hear from you. If you want to drop us a line or are interested in sponsoring this podcast, send an email to danny at levinemediagroup.com. Special thanks to Jonah Levine, who composed our theme music, and the Jonah Levine Collective, which performs it.